Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. We are in Sydney, Australia, downtown. Summer, beautiful, beautiful day. I just love summer in Sydney. I know my friends in America are struggling a little bit. Um, but uh, thank you for joining us on the It's a Monkey podcast, where we talk about everything relating to technology. Um, this podcast has gone out on Friday, the 16th of December, but we're actually recording it on Wednesday, the 14th of December, and we're actually live periscoping it. Um, so if you're lucky enough to watch us or listen to us and watch us and listen to us, I'm just going hit to a, hit a quick retweet um, on the Twitter so that the people um, following us on per- Periscope can follow us. Um, so, as usual, we have a fantastic show coming up. Later on in the show, we chat to uh, Barbara Gray. I did an interview with her a little while ago. Now, Barbara is really, really interesting um, guest. Um, we have had Barbara on the show before. I think it was episode 42, almost two years ago, so quite some time back, where Barbara wrote a fantastic article about the sharing economy, Uber, um, Airbnb, etc. Barbara is an analyst and strategy consultant at Brady Capital Research, and she's just published a book, Uber Economics, How to Create Economic Abundance and Rise Above the Competition. And Barbara and I had a great chat about all things relating to uh, political economy and um, Uber, Airbnb, etc. So that's coming up later on in the show. As usual with me is my co-host and the design lead at Manage Flitter, um, Kate Frappel. Kate, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be back. Um, you're becoming a bit of a veteran now, but podcast number six for you, somewhere mm, around there? Something like that. Oh, welcome. Yeah. I don't remember. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you enjoy it? Yeah, I'm getting something used little, to it. It's a little bit different. breaks up the day. Yeah, I think uh, when you first get behind a microphone, it's like, oh, what's this thing? Yeah, uh, but and now we're behind a video. Now we're so behind a video and microphone. We have the grand total of four people on Periscope watching us. But over time, <laughs> we'll... Uh, We'll get it. I think if we if we um, advertise the time and we'll we'll do it early in the day so our American friends can listen to us and we'll just another experiment. Um, so as usual, we talk about a few tech stories that have uh, happened this week. Apple AirPods finally announced that they are shipping. They announced their price. So tell us a bit more about Apple AirPods. Uh, so. Today, Rolling Stone have described the Apple AirPods as, excuse my language, pretty fucking cool. So let's just take a step back. So when Apple announced their new iPhone, um, they announced that they're going to get rid of the headphone jack. Yes, and and have wireless. And wireless, but not only wireless headphones, wireless headphones in two pieces, right? Yes. Which I don't believe has ever existed, as far as I know. Not wireless mm. two pieces. Yeah. Well, There's wired two pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't more details at the time of pricing, specs, and when they'll be available. And now they've announced that, right? I believe they've been out for a little while because there's lots of reviews coming out now. And I'm starting to see that people are um, testing and they really like the product. They like how clear and um, concise and the sound there's no um there's no noise cancellation but basically people have been using them and they've got some really good nice things to say they may be out in the u.s but i was, I was reading some sites it says uh, they promised to ship before christmas so that might be the uk oh, okay yeah so yeah. i'm not i'm not um might not, exa- not be everywhere in the world yet might not be everywhere i saw some really interesting features of the airpods that it has uh, motion detectors and other interesting detectors so it, it can tell when you take them out of your ears yep. 
and the music stops automatically. Yes. That's yeah. cool. I mean, I'm, yeah. I, I'm so often yank out my headphones amid podcasts and listening to a podcast and then you have to rewind back or, and that's quite a cute feature. Yeah, they detect when they're nested inside your ear, which I'm not sure how they exactly do that, but um, it is a good feature. Another one would be um, the ability to double tap and it's got a built-in microphone so you can talk to the assistant Siri. Um, Siri can play and fast forward, increase and decrease the volume, um, but only within the Apple Music, not within Spotify or any third-party applications. So are there any other sort of nif- nifty little features of Periscope? Periscope? Oh, sorry, I'm <laughs> looking at Periscope. Apple, <laughs> Apple, Apple AirPods. Um, uh, in terms of people are really wanting a... Uh, more than a double tap feature, you know. So at the moment they really love the microphone and the ability to bring up Siri to take uh, phone calls. Uh So again, you can answer a phone by double tapping. Uh Um, But they almost want a button that does those actions for them, like increases the volume, play and pause. So it's almost like they're moving the user interface up into the ears as well, right? Yeah, starting to. Well, that's what people are wanting. At the moment, you've got the double tap microphone and the like it's all connected by Bluetooth and the sensor that it's in your ear or it's out of your ear. What about um, the quality, the actual music quality? People seem to like it. Yeah. They say it's um, it's not bad, but um, better indoors than outdoors. Uh, but if you're the type of person that wants to listen while interacting with the real world then these are perfect. But if you're the type that wants to zone out completely and have a um, sort of a more sonic experience, these are not the headphones for you. I actually like two different types of headphones, exactly like that. I like my headphones that seal really well and um, sort of can be in the zone and I use that maybe on a a plane or, you know, other certain environments. And then I, I, I like the more open ones which where... If I'm doing exercise in a park or I'm at the beach, I actually want to hear the sounds as well. Yeah, you want to have a sense of where you are. Exactly. It's also dangerous if you're not it if is. you're crossing the road and you're completely zoned out. Um, but yeah, I mean, potentially the the over ear headphones are the way to go in terms of if you want that kind of deep experience. But um, the these AirPods for on the go use, they look pretty good. You're going to buy a pair one day. How, how much mm-hmm. are they in Australia? Uh, or in the US? About their 160. Okay, that's not yeah, too bad at all. They're not too bad, yeah. They're pretty affordable yeah. for what they are. Until you lose one of them. I'm always losing headphones. Yeah, well. I, I've probably spent thousands of dollars on, on headphones. Right. I just, yeah. you know, they just disappear and sometimes they pop up again. And um, and sometimes it's hard to find a good pair. You know, mm. like I will I will pay the extra money and buy a replacement a replacement. Uh, Apple headphones mm. if I lost them rather than go and buy a cheaper one from somewhere else. Because you're happy with them. Yeah. Super I use happy. The other ones break in a couple of months. Apple ones at least last a long time. I've currently got three headphones at the moment. Um, Bose, the Bose yep. wired ones. Um, really like those for exercise. They've got sort of a silicon um, sort of earpiece, which is really nice. I've got a Plantronics Bluetooth headset, which I love. Um, battery life you know is is not huge on that so you you know you have to you can't go on a long air flight or something with it um and then i've just bought a a bang and olufsen 
um, in-ear sort of uh, small wire, wired headphones, okay. yeah. uh, which are also pretty cool. And I've got the ones that I'm wearing now, which I use at work, um, which are sound sound cancelling, um, you know, isolation headphones. I forget the brand. Um, it's not a not a, a PSB. Yeah, it's not a, not a hugely well known brand, but they are a well known particular set of speakers. So. Yeah. Um, Speaking of batteries, though, um, that's the other feature with these AirPods is uh, a like a, a dock that you can carry with you, and you put the earpods in there, and they charge for another three hours of listening. Terrific. Well, uh, so you've got a portable battery pack as well. Apple always come up with something uh, something interesting. So anyway, that's uh, that's uh, Apple AirPods. Uh, interesting story I bumped upon, and it's probably only interesting to to people of a certain <laughs> certain vintage. Um, say goodbye to MS DOS command prompt. So way back when, when PCs came out, Windows didn't exist. Windows three point one didn't exist. Windows ninety five, Windows XP, uh, Mac, all of that, and we actually had to use a command prompt, which was just like how do you describe a command prompt? Just a little flashing letter, and you just literally type in commands, and um, you know you, you get access to the computer that way. And of course, the command prompt still exists in um, Linux and things like that. And developers really still like command prompts because you can do things really quickly. And even in the days of DOS, you could do things really quickly. Just type a few things and it would as opposed to click click you know around so it's like keyboard think of keyboard shortcuts thoughts since kate um kate's uh hadn't even heard of the ms dos prompt <laughs> so i thought i'd drag someone else in who's a little bit closer to my vintage who's the tech leader at manage flitter so he's uh knee deep in all the tech stuff to talk a little about the ms dos prompt ricky you hadn't even heard that the ms dos prompt was going to be deprecated from windows not at all. It wasn't on my radar. Um, I guess as a 100% Linux user, I've kind of missed that. And uh, But you must have started on Windows somewhere along the line, right? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a, it's certainly a nostalgic situation. Um, I've, I've, I've had a little bit of uh, experience with MS-DOS over the years. Um, obviously, it's it's where where Windows began. So it's 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 come a long way, and I can I can tell why they've they've deprecated it. So originally, I think Windows was actually built on DOS, yep. and then they built it from the, the the ground up without DOS, but then sort of retrofitted DOS back in. Is that right? I guess there were components of um, of MS DOS throughout the the Windows operating system for for years until very very recently, where they've been able to literally strip all of its components out. Um, I think the, the, the PowerShell replacement is, um, is what developers really need rather than, than what MS-DOS provided. So PowerShell's existed for a while, which is what? It's a different, it's, it's a similar type of DOS IDE environment? Well, it's, it's a shell environment. Um, if you're if you're familiar with with Unix Unix operating systems, you'll you'll be familiar with with shell environments generally. Bash um, is one that's been around for a long, long time. Um, so Windows has has kind of missed that um, where PowerShell popped up to kind of fill that that void, um, and it's 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 been there for a while to to allow that um, extra control for for system administrators for servers, Windows-based servers. But it's, so it's a command line as well. It is indeed, right? yes. So on Windows, standard Windows 10, you can get to that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been around for a while. Yeah, okay. So it's just the old-fashioned type DOS 
that's going to be, which of course goes back way back to the early 80s. And of course, those of us that started with PCs, um, it was pre-Windows 3.1. So we all started with DIR and um, what other commands were there? I think that's the only one I remember. But uh, any, any of those basic type commands um, would, would be fairly familiar to... Uh, to someone operating in DOS. Something like load star dot star or something like that. I'm, I'm really going um, back into, um, but of course, yeah, people working on Linux still um, deal with with um, command lines, etc. I think we should definitely show Kate what a, a command line looks looks like. I mean, it's, <laughs> indeed, it's indeed. quite interesting that someone can be knee deep in our industry and and you know not have access to a command line. So many so many graphical user interfaces these days. We we don't need these command lines to do our everyday bits and bobs it's um it's 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 more of a a niche now where where you're involved with with uh, administering systems except for i think in windows check disk used to be the one when there was an issue with your computer right <laughs> you would you would you would google something and land up at the command prompt and check disk and fix disk and just desperately trying to you know fix something from the dust um the DOS command line. Yeah, solving a crash from Windows. I think that's that's where most people would have uh, would have experienced DOS generally. Do you remember th- uh, Windows three point one, the first sort of proper version of Windows? How absolutely painfully unstable that thing was. I don't know. Oh, totally. It was just uh, totally. You know, I think um, the the stability and and we we dealt with it because it was so was such a seismic change and to have multiple windows open the other thing about dos machines I and mean, i'm looking at kate at the moment because she probably doesn't realize this either you could only work on one application at a time right <laughs> yeah yeah and kate's looking at me very confused right so it was quite transformative um to be able to work on multiple applications at a time if in dos you were working on your bookkeeping system on your computer that was it right if you wanted to work on your inventory system or your spreadsheet, you had to get out of that and then go into the spreadsheet. So um, Kate's looking at me with very, um, yeah, very, um, yeah, yeah, perplexed eyes. That's where that's where it came. That's why it was such a such a seismic change, you know, because you could work on multiple applications, particularly when Windows 95 came in, I think. Windows yeah, 3.1, it, 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 it couldn't quite um, pull it off neatly. But in Windows 95, you could open multiple browser windows. I mean, that alone, when that came in, you know, you, it started off, you can only have one browser window and then multiple browser windows. And when I used to show people, hey, do you know you can have multiple browser windows? They were like, oh, wow, I didn't know that, you know? So um, anyway, that's Ricky McAllister. He's a tech lead at Managed Flutter. Ricky, thanks so much for joining you. We may, joining you us, I should say. Um, we might drag you in every now and then to uh, talk about the, the more tech, tech-heavy tech parts of uh, some of our news stories. My pleasure. So that's uh, MS-DOS, um, and we'll put uh, links to some of those articles on the show notes. We're going to take a short break. After the break, we're going to be talking to Barbara Gray, and uh, we talked to Barbara about uh, the economics of Uber, the economics of Airbnb, um, and uh, Barbara's the author of Uber Economics, How to Create Economic Abundance and Rise Above the Competition. So we'll just take a short break, and we'll be back right after. Hi, my name is Dave Zarati, and I'm the customer support specialist here at ManageFlitter. ManageFlitter is a tool that helps you work faster and smarter on Twitter. With ManageFlitter, you can clean up and grow your Twitter account. 
You'll also get access to useful Twitter analytics, social content scheduling, and much more. Go to managedflitter.com and start your free trial today. You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. You're listening to Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Manage Flitter. Um, a couple of years ago, I stumbled upon an article on LinkedIn that was a fantastic article that spoke about Uber and Airbnb and how they're so representative um, of a new chapter in um, economic value add. And uh, at the time, I tracked down the author uh, all the way to Canada and um, we spoke um, we spoke to the author of the article, who's Barbara Gray, on episode 42 of the podcast. And I was excited to get an email a couple of months ago from, from Barbara saying she, has, she will be publishing a book, which uh, is now actually published, and uh, she'd like to um, come back on the podcast. And of course, I said, absolutely. So I'm excited to say at the end of my Skype line is Barbara Gray, who's an analyst and strategy consultant at Brady Capital Research. She's also the author of this great book, Ubernomics, How to Create Economic abundance and rise above the competition. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks very much, Kevin. It's great to be back. I think it was two years ago. so A little while ago. It's gone, very exciting. gone fast. I was very uh, interested to see that uh, the former CEO of Lululemon um, gave a, a thumbs up to your book. She said, Barbara is one of the most astute and forward-looking analysts who covered Lululemon. Uber Economics gave me a framework to think about the sharing economy, capital structure, and the value that can be gained from that. That's a, that's a real uh, nice pat on the back there. It is. No, I was, I was actually quite surprised when, when she gave me that review, but it was, it was great. And one of the things I love about, about Christine Day and Little Lemon that I mentioned in the book is, you know, she's always been about purpose-led companies. She was one of the first employees at Starbucks working under Howard Schultz, and then she went to Little Lemons. So, and her new company, uh, her new startup, Luvo, is, is about purpose as well. So it, it was wonderful to get that endorsement. And of course, Lululemon is one of the, the, the darlings of uh, Vancouver. It's, it's Vancouver um, founded, isn't it? It is, yes. I actually lived, used to live, um, I guess a decade ago, right uh, a block away from the first ever Lululemon store. Well, there's a, a couple in Sydney, and of course, they're very popular in Sydney because Sydney is a very much a, it's it's a sunshine beach, fit, look good, and a lot of people do yoga. And uh, you see in the yoga classes, you just see that little it's an omega sign, right? A stylized omega sign. That's the logo. Um, exactly. And you see that at the back of a lot of people. So it's an incredible company. I mean, they turn over billions, don't they? They do. And actually, I'm sitting, as I talk to you, I'm actually sitting here in my little lemon pants <laughs> with the uh, with the logo. It's basically what I wear every day because it's so cozy. And I've actually also got my little lemon hoodie on because it's raining here in Vancouver right now. I actually asked a friend in New York once, I said, what's the thing with Lululemon? And she said, it's just the quality. It's, a, it's great quality. Oh, the quality is amazing. Um, you know, the pants I probably wear almost every day. And so they, they, and they last for years. It's incredible. So it's a, it's a premium product, but functionally it's, it's amazing because it's long lasting. Well, we, 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 um, we definitely, despite what people think, this is not an advertorial for Lululemon, <laughs> but um, let, let's, let's get into the, think, the thick of it. Last time we spoke, you just published that article, which went viral, um, and um, which must have been pretty exciting. I think you've noted here. How many people have read that article in total so far? Yeah, now it's over 397,000 people. So for a niche sort so of economic style article, that's, that's pretty good. It, it is. It's amazing. I think what happened was that somehow, by some magical force, it got put on two of LinkedIn's channels. So it just went out to everybody. 
But it's it's interesting on LinkedIn. I don't know if, if you've noticed this, but it is getting so hard on their platform now and their publishing platform to get any form of distribution. A perfect example is I just actually published an article this morning because I just got back from attending the Airbnb Open LA conference, which was amazing. And I wrote an article, which I think is is really good. Anyways, I published it about two hours ago. It's gotten 23 views, which I'm still trying to figure out because I have 4,000 followers. I think Plus, um, I think over they, 500 connections. These social platform platforms muck with their algorithms, and if you get on the right side of the algorithm, boom, away you go. And if you're on the wrong side of the algorithm, I even notice it on Facebook where I'll post something sometimes, and and sometimes it's just an un- inconsequential comment, and I just get all these likes and comments, and sometimes I'll post something with a bit, post something with a bit more gravitas, and and crickets nothing so they they definitely do funny business with the algorithms what do you think of medium versus linkedin as a publishing platform i love medium's style it's it's sleek it's beautiful to publish on it's a nicer experience to publish on than linkedin but it's it's harder and what i like about linkedin if when it works for you is you can actually see the the character and the credibility of the person because you can see what their job title is what their experience what their education is um whereas medium is a bit more abstract it just has the person's profile, whatever they choose to add. So I prefer LinkedIn because it's much more valuable in terms of bridging, creating bridging capital. Interesting. Um, but the medium is, I wish LinkedIn would buy medium because it is a, a much sleeker um, form of, of publishing. Well, Microsoft, of course, now owns LinkedIn. I've never, yes. I've never been a huge fan of LinkedIn. I, I have fantasies sometimes of... Uh, of, of building a competitor to LinkedIn because I think it's, it's 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 a wonderful idea, a corporate social media network. I've I've never felt, um, and it's easy for me to say because you know, it's always easy to criticize when you're not in the driver's seat, but um, I always felt that it could execute a lot better. Yeah, well, I think especially now I'm actually getting quite d- discouraged with it because, you know, before you could get basically 100 views for every like, when you did post, now you're lucky if you get 10 views for a like. And and I think the problem is that because it's so popular and you have millions of people now that have discovered sort of the magic of publishing posts, because when you're professional, it's a great way to sort of promote yourself, like share expertise, but then also, you know, promote your personal brand. And so it's just, there's no real estate space left anymore. So it, you, you publish an article and it used to go out to everybody. Now it, 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 I don't know where it goes. It doesn't go anywhere. It just sits there. But uh, it's, I think, it's, I think it's en- interesting. I think engagement across the board is harder to get. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think there's a lot more noise. I think content marketing has become such a well-known strategy that people are pushing out. You know, a lot of content. I still think you know quality content is still going to cut through. But um, you know, as I say, there's there's ain't, ain't no free lunch. No, no, definitely. But it's interesting because, you know, what I love Twitter for, not so much on on trying to get distribution because Twitter is almost impossible, I find, for distribution. Unless, actually, the one thing I do tweet about, um, because I live in Vancouver and our housing prices, probably like like in Australia, are just sky high here. And it's, it's ridiculous. It's actually, we have a huge housing crisis here. So I do tweet against... Um, about Vancouver real estate and and the um, the different things that are happening to bring the market down to earth. And I find when I put out a tweet there, there's a huge community that's so um, so involved, and they they latch on, and I get like 23 retweets. But if I try to tweet anything about Ubernomics, 
<laughs> I get nothing. So it's, interesting. it's very interesting. interesting. Yeah. I mean, the house pricing thing is a, a very, very big thing in, in Sydney in oh. particular. It's, um, you know, you cannot go to a social event here and people are just talking about expensive to rent, to buy, etc. I mean, what's interesting about Canada and Australia is there's a lot of similarities in big, empty countries. And I think about mm -hmm. this um, a lot, you know, with some foresight. And it obviously takes years of, of planning, etc. But, you know, the issue is not really that there's a scarcity of space. The issue is that there's a scarcity of livable places with infrastructure and jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And community, and, um, you know, if we would just do policy that for, for I, I can't speak for Canada, but for Australia, better um, high speed rail, for instance, that would make a lot of rural areas that are very accessible and very cheap, but there's no jobs, um, you know, much more accessible and people would go live there. Mm -hmm. Well, I think for Vancouver, and I think it's very similar to Australia, the problem is we've had so much uh, foreign inflow of capital come in. So we've got so many homes are sitting vacant, lots are vacant, condos are vacant, um, and the city is actually just is going to be implementing in the new year a 1% vacancy tax. I saw that. I which saw is that. Very That's interesting. really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the other thing they're doing, it's interesting, because I was just at the Airbnb conference, and although I'm a huge fan of Airbnb, I think there is a problem when you've got a 0.6% rental vacancy rate in the city, and I don't think you should have corporate Airbnb rentals in that instance, so the city of Vancouver is actually looking and bringing in really, really strict regulations on Airbnb as well in the new year. I've, I've always noticed that, uh, you know, Sydney, we've got some wonderful areas, um, you know, by the water and, the, the, you know, the very um, sort of upper end of the market. And I've always noticed at night there how few of the lights are on, uh, mm -hmm. particularly in the big houses. In, in the apartment blocks, there's more. And the big houses is always um, – so they're obviously second or third or fourth homes of – you know, the 0.1 percenters. And they, they, I mean, it's, it's a hard one because there's, you know, there's freedom of choice, you know, and we all love that. But at the same time, there's an onus to be part of a community and also, you, you know, the, 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 the sort of egalitarian, to contribute to that egalitarian sort of nature of these communities, particularly Canada and Australia. So as usual with economics, it's, it's, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I think we might see the supply of housing shift from scarcity to abundance because what's happened in, in Canada is the government's now eliminated um, the loophole for foreign buyers to claim the 40% uh, exemption so they can no longer claim the capital gains exemption. And then the other thing they've done in the city of Vancouver is they've brought in a 15% foreign buyers tax. So you've had now four levels of or three levels of government that brought in measures. So it's going to be very interesting to see how quickly um, the inventory s starts to rise, how much sales start to drop, and how much prices start to go down. So people here, that's, that's the realistic conversation. <laughs> people here love your prime minister. He's he's good. Yes, he's, I think he's much better than the American one. Uh, we, 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 we won't we even, talk <laughs> we, we, we <laughs> could talk for there. hours on that. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your book. Let's talk about, um, you know, it's, it's, there, there's so much, you know, when, whilst I was reading your book, I was thinking back to my days of um, university and the internet was just starting to flap its wings. And, um, you know, you talk so much in your book about moving from, uh, you know, the economics of scarcity to the economics of abundance. And what, what's so interesting is even just in the university case study, you know, at the, when I joined university, um, universities had the absolute monopoly on knowledge and education, right? The libraries, the lecturers, the resources 
they had, you know, it was scarcity. And if you didn't get into university, that was it. You know, by the time I left university, um, there was an abundance of knowledge and education, <laughs> you know. And suddenly, and, and suddenly the dynamics were totally different. And so for someone who wanted it, you know, university wasn't the only place. And I guess this is playing out in, in all sorts of areas in our economy, right? Exactly. And the one example I talk about in my book, so my background is as a sell side equity analyst. And one of the last calls I made before I left the street in back in January of 2008 was I put a sell on a company called Yellow Pages, you know, the Yellow Pages uh, directory sure. companies. And at the time it was Canada's, um, it was the, the biggest uh, directory company in Canada. And it took four years, but the company eventually filed for bankruptcy. And so I've actually been going around the last couple of months meeting with fund managers in Canada, investment fund managers, basically talking to them about, you know, this is the call I made eight years ago. The call I'm making now is that we're now, we've gone from yellow pages to yellow cabs. And as an example, um, I talk about a company, I guess it was actually must have been just right after we'd spoken two years ago, I decided to short a company called Medallion Financial. Right. And at the time, 70% of their loans were to taxi medallion uh, holders in New York City and Chicago. And as you know, with uh, Uber and, and Lyft, the uh, price of a taxi medallion, you know, that was created by artificial scarcity. And it's basically gone from one point at its peak, 1.2 million in New York City to now between 400 to 600,000. Anyways, the stock, it was interesting because it basically held up and it was a scary stock to own because it, it paid a 10% dividend yield. So when you short a stock, you actually have, you're on the hook for that that dividend yield. But anyways, um, finally in August of this year, the company cut its, dividend by 80% and the stock completely tanked and it's now down at 350. I shorted it at 10 bucks, but nice. it, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's <laughs> good to see your <laughs> ideas play out, but it's, it's, it's showing you there's this the emergence of what I call these Ubernomics fault lines. And that's what I'm, I'm pas passionate about exploring right now. Do you know in Australia, in Sydney, they actually subsidized um, taxi plate owners. I think they gave them $25,000 when they, when they put in some new regulations to allow Uber. They actually um, compensated them, which there was a lot of criticism at the time because it was saying basically, look, you just, you, you know, as a business owner, if, if you mm -hmm. have a competitor that comes in, you, the government just doesn't go, oh, well, Google's coming to your <laughs> space now. Here we go. Take a check, you know. Yeah. That's wow. And the motivation for doing so was to basically keep them alive? Probably to keep them alive and probably because they, you know, they've made a lot of taxes as well from them. So, you know, in a way they, they may have wanted to share the, um, you know, share some of the, the, the loss with them in a way. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but I mean, Uber's always been, I mean, I believe in Vancouver. Um, what's the, how come Uber's, there's an issue with Uber there, I believe? Yeah, it's not here. <laughs> um, so Uber actually came into Vancouver initially in 2012, but back then there was no consumer demand for it. Nobody knew about it. So the taxi um, lobby was basically able to quickly force them out of town and they haven't been able to come back. And I was actually speaking at a panel presentation a few weeks ago on Vancouver Island. And one of the people on the panel was with me was from BC Tourism and he advocates for the taxi companies, but he was telling me that Uber is probably gonna come in and the, the ride sharing companies are probably gonna be able to come into Vancouver next year. I mean, that's really, um, you guys really stand out. I mean, Sydney's even allowed, <laughs> is allowing um, Ubers at airports now officially. 
So, yeah. um, which I think may be one of the first official ones, because um, I know airports have been a bit of a bit of a grey area for a while. So uh, you guys yeah. really, yeah, being the progressive uh, city yeah. that you are. Exactly. Well, when we spoke two years ago, Uber was in, I think, 60 or 70 cities around the world. Now it's in over 400 cities. It's it's really amazing. You know, and the valuation of Uber back then, I think, was 12 billion. Now it's 68 billion. They still, it's it's they, pretty incredible. They're still not turning profit, though, right? Not that profit at an early stage is everything, but um, they're still bleeding very badly. They are. But I think if if Tomorrow, they decided to basically stop all spending on expanding into new countries and stop acquiring new drivers and stuff. They would be completely profitable. When do you think Uber's going to going to go all um, self driving? I think it's going to be a couple of years. You I still mean, think you have it's to that get far the technology away? right. I I do because you have to get the technology of of companies. You don't want your self driving cars to 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 crash. But what's what's amazing actually on that topic? So I was just down in uh, Los Angeles for the last couple of days at the Airbnb open conference. And it was a fascinating event because it was, um, they had, I think 6,000 hosts from hundred countries around the world all gathered to basically, it was almost like a, a tribe, a tribal gathering of, a, of all these people that have a cult-like devotion to Airbnb, but it was incredible. And what I realized then was that Airbnb is really working to empower their hosts, whereas Uber, which is also leading a movement, but they are not working to empower their drivers. You know, if anything, they're trying to drive down the, uh, the wages that they make by continuing to encourage to increase supply of, of vehicles, Uber drivers on the road, and then also ultimately eliminating them. I think, though, uh, you know, even though they're thrown in the same sentence a lot, Uber and Airbnb, mm -hmm. um, they're quite different. I mean, I mean, the ability for an Uber driver to add value beyond just driving you from A to B is very, very difficult. I mean, you know, you sense it sometimes when you get in an Uber and he'll offer you chewing gum and water and he'll try to be chatty. But, you know, they're all a bit on the margin, that. Whereas with um, Airbnb, um, you, can, you can do a few things to your place, have a, a unique place. You can, um, you know, fill up the fridge. You can be a, a friendly host. You can, you, you can take them on tours. There's a, there's a lot more, um, you know, it's more open-ended in the way that you can add value than, a, than, than just an Uber, not, you know, just an Uber driver, but in a way, just an Uber driver. Yeah, I think that's because, you know, Uber is an on-demand commodity service where Airbnb is like a high fidelity proposition. And and what's interesting is I've always thought of Airbnb as, you know, a company that's democratizing um, personal assets, like democratizing homes. But what I realized when I was at this conference and spoke with these hosts from all over the world is that Airbnb is a community of hosts. It's not just a community of spaces. And what they announced on, on Thursday, uh, Brian Chesky made a huge announcement for Airbnb and they announced that they're getting into a new a new area called experiences. So not only are they going to basically, they're disrupting the accommodation market, now they're disrupting the experience market and it's fascinating because they're allowing anybody um, and they're starting with their hosts to go onto their platform and create a curated excursion, either a one-day or couple-hours trip or a multi-day trip based on their passion. And if you think about it, it's absolutely amazing. And if you go onto their app, they now have this Experiences tab. And it looks incredible. Like you can go truffle hunting in Italy. You can do yoga in L.A. It's, and they've launched in 12 cities now. 
it's it's, it it's opening in, up this um, Sydney yet? Do you know? They let me. Th- I'm trying to think if Sydney is one of the 12 cities. I'm not sure if they are. There's 12 cities mm-hmm. around the world. Um, I'll have to check on that. And then next year they expect to be in 50 cities. But it is just amazing. And so I think they've realized that they're getting so much. You know, they're got they're getting a lot of flack on the regulatory side, like cities like Vancouver. So they're expanding the market though into new areas. Do you think um, Airbnb will ever get onto the property side of things? So, so, so taking it the other way and actually, you know, having an Airbnb hotel uh, of some sort. I don't know. Well, in essence, you're there already are Airbnb hotels because I was in Toronto two weeks ago for business, and it was an Airbnb. It was a condo, and I went to check in, and I didn't get to meet my host. I went to the the pole outside the condo and there was 75 lock boxes attached to it and I had to punch in the key and take out a key so essentially this brand new condo was really an Airbnb you know condo but I don't think Airbnb will actually own the physical assets I mean that's the beauty of the platform is because it is asset light but they are going to start inviting like bed and breakfasts are already on their platform. And I think they're they're not adverse to having boutique hotels put their inventory on the platform. But they did say they do not want to become an Expedia. They don't want the large hotel chains on their sure. platform. But they're okay with the boutique hotels. I always thought a branded hotel where they'd actually own or lease the property would also be interesting from a political play in a city because suddenly then they um, – in a way, a traditional hotel operator. But I can certainly understand the benefit of their platform of not not having the hassle of uh, actually physical assets is a huge, huge win. Mm-hmm. And from a financial perspective, it's it's it gives you a much higher multiple. So Airbnb and Uber are another ones, you know, when we talk about um, the sharing economy and, and um, you know, um, collaborative consumption and um, you know a great example of of disruption where value is unlocked um, due to a combination of new technologies and social media networks and the democratization of of communication are there any other examples though I mean it seems like it's you know Airbnb and Uber have done a fantastic job in in disrupting but what are some of the other examples where value has been unlocked in uh, new and exciting ways the one company I really like is Liquid Space, and I don't I don't think they're in Australia. I think they're only in in the states and Canada. But what they do is they're basically unbundling the traditional office lease. So you know the problem with a lot of companies, especially growth companies, is you know you have to find um, office it's a space, but you don't it's want a yeah, and you don't one of the biggest nightmares actually commercial leases yeah. as an owner, a CEO, it's just a pain in the in the head, yeah. Right, because you don't know what your what your um, space needs are going to be, and especially five or ten years out. So what they do is they allow um, people to go on and basically find sublease space on either a monthly, annual, or multi-annual basis. And then the flip side, if you're a business and you've got excess space, either because you know of an economic downturn or because you've got too much for your needs right now, you can go on and sublease your space. And you know, what's what's yeah? Sorry, go. Oh no, that's fine. I was just going to say, you know, I, I think a lot about, um, you know, this unlocking the value of excess capacity. And uh, I've thought, you know, I feel it every day when, when I cook at home and there's excess capacity of food, you know, and you can freeze some and it may or may not get used or you can take some to work the next day. But I've always had this vision of a nice community sharing app where 
um, you can even make a little bit extra on purpose and you pop it on the app and those within a few kilometers can come and pick up a meal, a fresh home-cooked meal, even for free as an as a, um, a, a altruistic community uh, service. Mm-hmm. No, that would be good. I, I think there might be food safety issues with that though because if somebody did get food poisoning from, from your cooking, <laughs> not that they would, but I think there'd be huge, there could be liability issues. And the, the interesting thing is they were actually two sort of, um, kitchen sharing, meal sharing, um, companies, kitchen surfing and kitchen, and they both went bankrupt this year. So interesting. the, um, yeah, so that model's not necessarily playing out. You know, I thought there would be health and regulatory issues but a few years ago in sydney there's a woman that started up a charity that goes and collects food from corporate events leftover food from corporate events and takes them to homeless shelters and um yeah it's been i suppose they're coming from commercial kitchen kitchens though Mm -hmm. so that's Mm -hmm. that that might be that might be the difference but she's using that excess capacity of these corporate events where there's a whole heap of amazing food sometimes so you have you know some of these uh, shelters in sydney getting some of the best food in the city that would have just gone down uh, down the drain that's great that's really really good so tell us um your book um, talks a lot about um, the long tail of supply as well, which I guess this long tail concept has been around for a little while. That the that the internet has really enabled and made it and made it so exciting that you can help build entire businesses around niches. Mm-hmm. Well, it started with so Chris Anderson wrote the book The Long Tail, which he published back in 2006. I actually read it back then, and he was really talking about the democratization of content. So it was the long tail of of content. And so what I did in my book is I basically it was actually I took a mashup of of the long tail with Blue Ocean Strategy, and which was also published a decade ago. And my thesis on the long tail is that when you apply the concept to the sharing economy, what you get is you basically get a long tail or like a niche of underutilized or latent assets, goods and services. And it's fascinating how many different forms there are. And um, you note in your book as well, you said your uh, your thesis over the next decade, most companies will either be on a marketplace or build their own marketplace. It's capital efficient and part of the trend um, towards access versus ownership. I think there's a lot in that statement. If you could just unpack that for us. Sure. So what I've been doing since the summer, because my background and my passion is is being a research analyst, I've actually started researching sort of the intersection of what I call the sharing with a sharing economy with uh, traditional corporations. And I've actually identified 150 publicly traded companies that have partnered with sharing economy companies and sharing on-demand economy companies, which actually blew my mind. And and they're in 58 uh, sub-industries. So it's it's extensive. It's not just isolated to one sector. So, um, Barbara, I know we were running out of time, but give us... Give us some thoughts or takeaways. If you uh, want to be entrepreneur or you're an entrepreneur, I mean, what, what, you know, how can we sort of imagine, um, you know, we always have to think, we always have to think about skating to where the puck is going to be going. I think that was a Canadian player or was it American? Yes. Was it Canadian? Wayne Gretzky, yes. He's Canadian, yes. right? Yes. I, I don't know much about sport, but at least I got that <laughs> one right. Um, you know, so, so, 
what's, what do entrepreneurs need to start thinking about in terms of all of you know, these words of you know, unlocking capacity and long tail? You know, give us some, give us some you know, tangible um, you know, um, sort of approaches that, that can be taken. Well, I think the, 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 the biggest takeaway and actually being at the Airbnb conference uh, the last couple of days really reinforced this is if you want to create a marketplace, you can't just create a marketplace. You have to create a movement because you have to get people passionate about what you're doing because the problem with the economics on marketplaces is you don't even have it's not just worrying about on the demand side about customer acquisition costs and customer attrition rate compared to the lifetime customer value. But you also have to worry on the supply side about supplier acquisition costs and supplier attrition rates. And the problem is, is there's so much competition in all the different verticals because everybody is coming out with the Airbnb of X, the Uber of Y. So what's happening when competition increases the acquisition costs go up, the attrition rates go up, and the economics just crash. And that's why we've seen, I put out a big report a year ago on the top 75 sharing on-demand economy companies, mostly in the U.S. that had raised at least a Series A round of financing, but nine of them have gone under, you know, since since last year. So I think the thing is you have to create a movement, and if you want to create a movement, you need to have a social mission. Now, you have to have a real social mission, you know, that's aligned with your, your business models, revenue drivers. And what I've identified in the book is it can either be about community, like Airbnb is, you know, their thesis is belong anywhere, about accessibility, like Uber is, because Uber is about, you know, building transportation as reliable as running water to everyone everywhere, or like Lyft, whose social mission is about sustainability, which is basically to eliminate vehicle ownership and get cars off the road. But of course, so so- I, I think... Yeah. Your social mission has to be um, have a little bit of depth to it and obviously tie in with the actual value you're providing. It can't just, I think there's a danger in just having a, a tokenistic social mission oh, that's yeah. shallow and doesn't really link up with what you're actually doing. Totally. It has to be completely aligned with your revenue, revenue drivers, and that's really, really important. You can't just, it's not a CSR thing. It's not a corporate social responsibility thing. It has to be integral to your business model. Barbara, your book is available on uh, um, Kindle. It's available on um, paperback and not audio yet, I believe. And uh, that's on Amazon, right? It's on Amazon, yeah. And Amazon in Australia, Amazon in Canada, Amazon in the US, yeah. I've already got it on my Kindle. So I really appreciate you Excellent. taking the time um, to speak with us. Um, it's a fantastic book. Um, it's, um, we've been talking to Barbara Gray, an analyst and strategy consultant at Brady Capital Research, author of Ubernomics, How to Create Economic Abundance and Rise Above the Competition. A lot of food for thought there. Really encourage you to get a copy. Um, as always, Barbara, thanks so much for chatting to us. Thank you, Kevin. Wonderful to chat with you again. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free.
I really enjoyed uh, talking to Barbara Gray. Uh, we went a bit all over the place there about property in Vancouver and property in Sydney and, um, you know, tax on... What do you think about that tax that Vancouver's put in that if, you, if you're not a resident but you own a property and you just have your property empty, you get taxed? Mm. I suppose it's, it's an optimising the space in the city, Yeah, I guess. They want people to live there and not yeah. waste it. They want to disincentivize people not contributing yeah. to the community. But, yeah. Um, yeah, look, I mean, the Airbnb and Uber phenomenon is is definitely interesting. And obviously it's, um, you know, it's become so established these days that they're not, um, you know, they've become verbs. Yeah. You know, just Airbnb it or just Uber it. Uber that's, it, yeah. You know, that's when you know. Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot about some of the points Barbara and I made in there that we're moving from the world of scarcity to that world of abundance and mm. it brings different set of problems. Yeah. You know, even like the problem of obesity is a problem of abundance, not scarcity. Scarcity, yeah. An interesting thought on the 1% uh, tax. Um, why wouldn't they, if you're one of these people that has multiple houses and one that's like on the beach or, you know, a prime location in the city... Why wouldn't you Airbnb it and then avoid the tax? Because think about it. I mean, if you were a multi-billionaire and mm. you owned five houses and you don't need the money and the hassle and the headspace, you would just leave your house locked up, right? And when you use wow. it tw- two weeks a year, you come in and your house is there. I mean, there, there's... But there's still a lot of benefit to having people actually use the facilities in your house. If things go unused, they can they can decay as well. They can, but... It depends. I mean, it's yeah. a you know, it's cost benefit. I mean, I don't know. I don't know any billionaires personally. No, so neither. <laughs> <laughs> but as I mentioned in the interview with Barbara, the, the, you know, I live in a in a, in a suburb um, that uh, has some apartments which I'm in, yep. and um, you know, there's mere mortals in the apartments, and then there's some houses which are just these you know amazing houses mm-hmm. where even Nicole Kidman used to live in one of them. Oh wow! Um, like equivalent of a penthouse. Um, no, actual houses. Okay. Like, yeah. you know, and um, and some of those houses, lights always seem to be off, mm. you know. So my theory is they, yeah, they second, third, fourth homes and um, they're not used very often. They don't rent them out. And wow. the apartments are always full because us mere mortals and we, we the one that contributes to the community. It's a difficult thing to de- decide. You know, people should have freedom of choice what to do with their assets, but at the same time it's community, so... Yeah, it seems like such a waste of space, though. People well, people could be using it. They could be, but if it's your property, you should be able to dictate as well. True. You know, so the goes the, both ways. Goes both ways. Um, but anyway, Barbara's book is is pretty interesting, um, and um, Ubernomics: How to Create Economic Abundance and Rise Above the Competition. She also made some interesting points about LinkedIn and Twitter and how it's it's gotten harder to get engagement on these platforms. Yeah. Um, her first article a couple of years back just went ballistic and she just got, um, mm. which, which was the precursor to this book. Okay. Uh, she built this other article into a book and uh, she got tons of engagement on LinkedIn. Um, interesting today I saw LinkedIn has rolled out a new UI. Um, oh, which I thought they changed it relatively recently. I think about a year ago they did, but I see today they've they freshened it again. up again. And oh, it's wow. definitely, okay. uh, definitely a weak point of their, um, their service has been their yes. UI. Yeah. Huge, huge weak point. I think they could be, you know, they could be refreshing it, you know, since they bought Linda as well for online learning. I heard the other day I went to like a, a morning breakfast conference thing and um, 
there was a representative from LinkedIn and she said, you can actually do these courses on Linda and then when you've completed them, it shows up on your LinkedIn profile that you've completed a course. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And of course, uh, Microsoft owns LinkedIn now. Yeah. So there's that, there's that connection as well. Mm. So um, the founder of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman, is a fantastically smart man. He's ex-PayPal, part of the, what they call the PayPal Mafia with Elon Musk and David Sachs and all these guys that have gone on to do great things. And if you're looking, um, if you're an entrepreneur listening to this and you're looking for some interesting talks, just Google Reid Hoffman, um, super, super smart uh, man. And uh, yeah, he created LinkedIn all those years ago. Um, anyway, that's about it for us for episode 72, right? Uh, previously, last week, um, we spoke to Kathy Hackle, fantastic chat about AR and VR, technologies that Kate and I both fell in love with. I'm just excited. Um, excited and um, we still got a book that uh, microsoft ar technology um, yeah. demo which will be really exciting if you are listening to this podcast and you are enjoying it enjoying it um, please tweet us monkey podcast send us a facebook message uh, podcast at it's a monkey.com or if you can take two seconds and leave us a uh, itunes review That'll be uh, very much appreciated. We are also doing these podcasts weekly to try keep them up and um, you know keep ourselves a little bit more engaged because uh, if we do it every two weeks, it's, um, if you do something frequently, you, you tend to get better at it and you optimize it than That's if you true. do something. You know, I've got an admin task, a couple of admin tasks that I do um, once a year mm. and it's always the, the the overhead to get myself back into it is just so dramatic you know yeah. <laughs> and if I had to do it every month it would probably be a lot easier so it's actually helping us in a way to do it weekly yeah. it gets it gets um gets easier with routine gets into a rhythm so and of course you can follow Kate on Twitter at Kate Frappel double p double l I'm at ke underscore ga um, if you're a managed Flutter user, a special shout out to you. And um, yeah, next week will nearly be Christmas. Yeah, I think we're only a week away from Christmas. So today is the 14th. 14th. Yeah. So I uh, hope you, you're starting to enjoy the, the wind down to the new year. Although I know some of our listeners come from countries where there actually isn't a holiday. So there's many countries that mm. don't celebrate Christmas and it's full steam ahead. <laughs> so um, thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week on the It's a Monkey Podcast. <laughs>